to uh, lunch with a lesson. Uh, please uh, go ahead and eat. Um, and if you have a Bible near you, uh, you can turn to the book of 1 John. Um, Chip got called away, and so you're stuck with me today. So it's one of those uh, one of those two day periods where things are, you know, things are happening. I went swimming yesterday with my kids and dove in and got out and realized I had my phone in my pocket. Yeah, thank you, thank you for not laughing at me like uh, some of the teenagers did. So, First um, John chapter two is where we're going to be uh, this afternoon doing a series in Sunday School in the book of 1 John, and I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 17, so if you want to follow along, you can. 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for Wednesdays. Thank you for the word that is open to us. Uh, We eat and we feast physically uh, with this great meal. Father, we pray more so that we would feast on your word spiritually. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Been start, I started reading a book this past week, uh, first watched the movie, which I would never recommend doing. Always read the book first and then watch the movie. But uh, there was a movie that came out called Monuments Men. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about it, uh, but I started reading the book just this past week. Had not realized that in, during World War II, there was a group of, uh, it began with about six or eight uh, professors, uh, men who worked in the art world, uh, art experts, um, who began to see what was going on in Europe uh, as the um, Normandy invasion began. Uh, And their fear was that while we might win the war, we might lose our soul as a people if we lose uh, the accomplishments and the creations of of man, especially in the area of arts and sculpture, of writing. Um, So these men, who were uh, well into their 40s and 50s, uh, beyond fighting age, uh, were trained and were sent uh, with the approval of the president to go to Europe, particularly into France, uh, into Poland, uh, down into Italy and places like that, to basically uh, uh, scout out um, and find the art that has been with us for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. Uh, and their job was to protect art, to protect uh, monuments, cathedrals, um, and it, it became more and more known that Hitler had a great interest in hoarding as much of the art as he could. His desire was that when he won, that he would have in his hometown of Lentz, that he would have a, a monument and a museum uh, that would showcase all of the art uh, that he had taken from around uh, the world. Um, and he literally had millions of pieces of art uh, that through the Nazis uh, and their conquest, had stolen. Um, and at one point, uh, someone made the statement that um, how much would be enough for Hitler? Uh, how much land? How many peoples? How much art? How much treasure? And the answer was all of it. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. That's a question that 
you don't often get asked from the pulpit. You don't often hear from pastors. Uh, it's a feeling question. It's a question that uh, I'm going to ask. I'm going to say a name or two, and I want you to tell me in your own head uh, what feelings does it in- evoke? Um, Adolf Hitler. What feelings, thoughts come to mind when I say that name? And not just thoughts, not just the reality of who he was, but what feeling did it, did it create inside of you when I said that name? Because I think there's a generation coming along now that when you say that name, it doesn't really evoke feelings, it evokes more bookish thoughts. Someone they've studied. Uh, perhaps some here um, lived through or have relatives that fought in World War II. And so when I say the name Adolf Hitler, it, it evokes and brings out in you a certain emotional connection and feeling. Uh, more currently, if I were to ask, you know, if I were to say the name uh, um, Osama bin Laden, maybe it stirs in your hearts, in your emotions a little bit more. It's a little bit more contemporary. Um, but certainly with Adolf Hitler, uh, for older generations, maybe generations who lived through World War II, Uh, whose parents lived through it, Uh, the name Adolf Hitler stirs a variety of emotions. Perhaps uh, um, a sense of remembering a sense of fear. Perhaps remembering a sense of elation because of his defeat. Perhaps uh, a sense of hatred. Uh, Perhaps uh, you or someone you knew um, had Jewish background, Jewish family, and so there's there's still a sense of, of hatred that is stirred in your heart. He was a man who stirred great emotion all across the spectrum. But he was a man who, uh, who loved the world and wanted to conquer the world. He was a man who obviously did not heed what is written here in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Adolf Hitler loved the world and he loved the things of the world so much so that he wanted all of them for himself. Hopefully, and uh, I'm sure of this, that there's no one here that has those same kinds of ambitions as Adolf Hitler did. But we do struggle with some of the same um, weaknesses. We, in areas, love the world, and there are certain things of the world that we are drawn to. We are perhaps enslaved by. Um, So John makes two statements. Do not love the world and do not love the things of the world. So what is John talking about here when he says, do not love the world? Because there's great uh, writing on this, great debate. This verse is often taken out of context. Um, what does it mean to, uh, to love the world? Or in, in, in this negative sense, do not love the world. What does he mean by the phrase, the world? Could he mean creation itself? That we're not to love the mountains and the sea. We're not to love the trees that sway in the wind, the, the, the leaves that change colors each fall. Does he mean we're not to love creation? Obviously he doesn't because you read this passage in the context of the rest of Scripture. And the rest of Scripture tells us that God is a God of creation, of creating. He loves his creation and we're to love creation. So he doesn't mean creation as in the earth and the land. Does he mean people groups? Does it mean that we're not supposed to love family and friends, um, people from Mexico and from Russia, from Italy, from North America? The scripture makes it very clear that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to love the people groups, so much so that we're, we're willing to go and die for them, to bring the gospel. 
So John does not mean when he says don't love the world, don't love the peoples of the world. Maybe a little you know, more to the heart of it, maybe he means uh, professions or business. Maybe the, the system of the world that, that seeks to provide a living or seeks to, to gain wealth. And yet we're told in Scripture also that we're to work as unto the Lord. We're to take up our profession daily and we're to work as in uh, to bring glory to God. And he calls us to professions. He's called you to something today, to work and to labor hard after. So John does not mean here that we're not to love and to work towards uh, a job or profession. Maybe he means politics. Maybe it's closer. I don't know. But uh, we're not to love politics, right? We're not supposed to, as Christians, get engaged in political parties or serve on councils, have no aspirations towards uh, any kind of office holding or making an affecting change in, uh, in politics. Is that what John's talking about here? I don't think so, because Scripture again calls us to engage the world, to bring Christ to whatever field uh, that we're following after. Um, so when John says, uh, do not love the world, what does he mean? If it's not creation, if it's not people groups, if it's not business, if it's not politics... When John says, do not love the world, he's talking about the system, the worldview that comes from the world, the anti-Christian, the anti-Christ view, the, the rebellious view that says, I will not be mastered by anyone, that my life is my own, I will follow my own path. He says, don't love the world, meaning don't love the idea of the world, the idea put forward by Satan that says rebel against God, flee from him. We see that worldview uh, begin in the garden with Adam and Eve. We see the world being created in a sense in the garden there, the, the fallen world being created, the, the world that says God is, is to have no part of your life, follow after what you want. So John says don't follow the pattern of the world, don't follow the worldview of Satan. Don't love that. He then goes on and gives some specifics about what of the world, what of that worldview we're not to love, we're not to follow after. Because he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. And again, we can get bogged down and say, you know, does he mean possessions? Does he mean people? Does he mean wealth and those things? And certainly those can be bad. But that's not specifically what John is talking about because John answers his, the question, what things of the world are we not to love as the verses progress? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the worldview of Satan and the worldview of God. They're, they're, they're contrary to one another. So he says you cannot love the world and the Father at the same time. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, he's about to define for us what is in the world, what things in the world that we're not to fall in love with, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. These are not from the Father, but from the world. This way of pursuing things in this life he's talking about, our motivations, our passions, and how they lead us away from the world is what John is talking about here. Um, if you would turn over to Matthew chapter 4, 
I think that, uh, and this is not unique to me, but I love this, uh, um, I think, a parallel passage that we see in Matthew chapter 4 that gives us a little bit more of a full picture of what these things are. This lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, this pride of life. We probably don't have to think too long about it before we can put some, some defining characteristics to these three things. The lust of the flesh, these physical appetites that, that we have um, that can be perverted and, and used against the Lord. We all love food. We're here today to enjoy a lunch. And we can enjoy that for God's glory, or we can pervert it, as the world says. We, we can engage in gluttony, and food can become an idol. We can enjoy wine and drink to a certain level, and then, but we can also pervert it and abuse it. Sexuality and sex is a God-given thing, and yet those can be perverted. Those can become idols to us. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that, that vanity, that, that love of appearances, that being controlled by how I look and how other people perceive me can be controlling for us, can it not? We look at, at our houses we look at our clothes, we look at the things that we have, and, and sometimes we don't have those things, those things have us. We're not controlling those things, we're being controlled by those things. Our homes oftentimes become showpieces for our perceived greatness. We want people to look at our home and see what a great job we've done earning a living, keeping a, a nice house. And again, those are not bad things in and of themselves, but when they begin to control us, when the lust of the eyes begins to control us, we, we're in danger with greed and coveting. The pride of life, that self-glorification, again, where we, we take so much pride in our appearance, we take so much pride in, in the things we do that it controls, whether it's wealth or title or position. Did you choose the college that you went to strictly because it had the major that you wanted or because you wanted the prestige that could come with having your name attached to that school. And there are benefits, certainly. There are times when that's right. You want to be a physician, and so you want to go to a good school so that you can uh, have a good practice. But it crosses the line when we're controlled by that, that diploma, when we're controlled by that, uh, those initials before our name. And we want everyone to know, I went to this school and not that one. I'm this kind of person and not that one. And so John is saying that we're not only to not love the world, the system of thought, the system that comes from the worldview that comes from Satan, but we're not to love the things of the world. Matthew chapter 4 takes us to a, a familiar passage where Christ himself is tempted. And I do believe that what we see here in, in, this, in these temptations of Christ is a pattern of what John is talking about here. That when Christ is tempted, Satan is attacking him on these three areas. They're a little bit out of order, um, and they're overlapping. Uh, one can relate to uh, many of these, so I'll try and be clear as, as we go through this. John chapter 4, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4. Um, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I love the understatement there. 40 days, 40 nights, no food, he was hungry. It's just an obvious statement, but it is packed with meaning 
that of course he's hungry. And not just hungry like, oh, I may get a snack out of the refrigerator tonight after dinner because I'm still a little bit hungry. Forty days and forty nights without food. And Satan waited to the end of this time to go after him. When he wasn't just hungry, he was famished. He was starving, literally. Christ was weakened physically, emotionally, spiritually during this time. And yet he was buoyed because he was there to spend time with his father. And yet Satan knew this would be the time. If I'm ever going to get Christ, if I'm ever going to knock him off his game, if I'm ever going to lead him away from his calling and his task, it's going to be now. And it's early in his ministry. It's early in his calling. And so this would be the time to derail what it is that Jesus has come to do. The tempter, verse 3, came and said to him, If, always an if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Starts with, perhaps the, at this point, the greatest temptation. He's hungry and he's starving. And, and the idea of, of a loaf of bread at this point would have probably made his mouth water uncontrollably his stomach knot up and begin to gurgle with the anticipation just the thought of something to eat at this point so would it have been a temptation some have said that well he was the son of god so he wasn't really tempted but scripture says that he was tempted in every way that we are fully god fully man so these would have been legitimate temptations so satan starts with the physical temptation He starts with, in a sense, the lust of the flesh, the flesh that has appetites, that has a a physical need, a physical desire. Satan goes after him, and he says, turn this stone to bread. And and, and Christ, I don't know, did he think about it long? Did he quickly move on? He combated Satan's attack, though, with Scripture. Um, He combated Satan's attack with Scripture. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm not just a physical shell, Satan. I'm a spiritual being. And there's more to life, there's more to my calling than simply the physical. While you're trying to attack me with the lust of the flesh, my my legitimate physical needs that we all have to, to eat, to drink, that had, had gone unmet for 40 days and 40 nights. Christ is saying to him, I'm far more than that. I'm a spiritual being as well. And, and I can forego that for a time. I can put that aside because my greater desire is to know and obey my Father. Can we do that? Can we put aside some of our physical needs and desires, even good ones, for a time that we might know Christ better? Does fasting play a part in your life? It never did in mine. It did in my wife's family, so we've tried at different times. We don't always fast from food. Sometimes we fast from television or from forms of entertainment. And, and during those moments when my mind quickly goes to, hey, I'll go pick up the clicker and, and no, I'm going to pray. Those moments when your stomach begins to gurgle because you're so hungry, you pray. You go back to the Lord. And in depriving yourself physically, you're enhancing your relationship with Christ Jesus as you pray and as you focus on him. And that's what Christ is saying here. I put aside my physical needs 
even legitimate ones, because I want to know my Father. I want to glorify my Father. So John, back to 1 John, says, um, the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, we're to put those aside at times. He goes on in verse 5 of Matthew 4. I'm jumping back and forth, forgive me. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, again, if... Throw yourself down. And Satan reasons perhaps, if Jesus is going to use Scripture, I can use Scripture too. And he responds, He, God, will command His angels concerning you. And, another passage, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. There's a, a pinnacle on the, um, uh, on the temple, when the temple was in existence uh, that overlooked the Kidron Valley, and it would have been hundreds of feet to the base of this valley uh, from the top of this pinnacle. Um, and so Satan takes him there to this grand vista that overlooks uh, this city, and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. God cares for you. He's not going to let you fall to your death. You have a purpose here? Great. Show me, Satan, show me who you are. Just one little act, one little demonstration. And this would have been a temptation. It would have been a temptation on many levels to show Satan who he is, to, to, uh, to put Satan in his place. But beyond that, to show a watching world what great press releases there would be. Man throws himself from pinnacles, saved by angels. What a great reputation he would have. He would be known as a man of miracles. He would be known as a man who was saved by God. Angels swept in. And, and took him away. John talks about one of the things of the world being the pride of life, this sense of self-glorification. We need prestige. We need for people to think well of us. And the temptation here, perhaps, that Satan was going after was this need to make a name for himself, to prove himself the Son of God to Satan to a watching world, to this watching city, to make a name for himself. And we all struggle with this, do we not? The pride of life, we want people to think well of us. And sometimes we're willing to compromise. We're willing to cut corners because we're so desperate for that approval. We're so desperate for people to like us. We want a name. We want a good name. And there's a sense where that's not bad. We're, we're called as Christians to have good names. But it becomes sin when it becomes controlling. It becomes sin when we begin to, to, to cut corners and to do things that are ungodly and unbiblical to hold on to that name. I talk to students all the time, and one of the temptations is to, to gain a good name as a good student, straight A's, all the way. What happens when those A's are, are endangered because of a, a, a bout of sickness or a forgotten test or a forgotten answer, and you're in danger of failing and no longer having the name of perfect students? Maybe in your business you're known for sales and you want to keep that sales record. And so you find yourself willing to cut corners, being less than honest because you need that prestige, you need that name. Maybe as a, as a wife or as a mother, as a woman, you want other women to think well of you. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But how far are you willing to go to hold on to that title? How far are you willing to go to, to make other people think that you're great. Christ responds to Satan's attack here 
And he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's not willing to fall for Satan's uh, baiting. He's not willing to, to put Satan's opinion over and above his father's opinion. He's secure. His father loves him. He's the son of God. It's unquestionable. He doesn't have to prove himself. He has the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's secure whether Satan agrees with it or not. You, if you know Jesus Christ, are a son or daughter of the King. And that is unshakable and cannot be moved. No one can take that from you. It's secure in Jesus Christ. And that is the title that we should long for, hold on to, and cherish the most. Everything else will fade. Everything else will fall by the wayside. And Christ Jesus knew this as well. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high place, a high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. All these I will give you. Some have questioned why would this be such a great temptation for Christ? Is it the money? Is it the, the, the wealth that goes with this? Perhaps it would be a temptation to me. I want to see this mountaintop where you can see the kingdoms of the world. Um, but perhaps the greater temptation, and some have said this would have been the greatest temptation because Satan was offering to Christ what Christ would secure through the cross. But Satan was offering to Jesus everything without the cross. Satan was saying, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. And Christ Jesus went to the cross to secure a kingdom, to make it permanent, to make it forever and eternal. And so Satan, does he have the power to to carry through on his promise? I don't know. He's, He's called the God of this world. Perhaps he could have given Christ that. But Christ might have been tempted because we know that Christ uh, struggled with going to the cross. We see him in the garden, anxious, sweating droplets of blood. He didn't want to go, but in the end, he submitted. In the end, he said, not my will be done, but yours. And so Satan was offering him a path around the cross to glorification, around the cross to his kingdom, around the cross to a people. Perhaps that might have been the greatest temptation to avoid the cross. And yet uh, Christ responds as he has been. Be gone, Satan. This time he's finished. He's done with them. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then beautifully, verse 11, the the, the devil left him, and behold, now the angels came and ministered to him. He had passed the test. He had come through with flying colors. In essence, he had, um, like Uh, He had passed the test that Adam had failed. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam. Because it, it is the system of the world that leads away from God, that flees from God, that puts you at the center. Satan attacks Christ in many similar ways. Eat of the apple, Christ. Bow down and worship me. Which is what, in essence, Adam was doing. But Christ passed. The the second Adam passed, and he passed on our behalf. He passed on our behalf. If Christ is your Lord and Savior today, then he didn't just secure, secure eternal life, 
but his righteousness is yours. And this is included, this passing of the perfect test, passing of the test of of obedience to God, of bowing to no one but the Father. You passed through Jesus. We see in Christ, and I'll end with this, we see in Christ the, the solution, the path through temptation. And it's not trying harder, and it's not trying to come up with crafty answers. It's Scripture itself. It's submitting uh, our lives to, to, to Christ and to combating the attacks of the evil one with, with the Word of God. Ephesians 6, putting on the armor of God, equipping ourselves with, with, with the sword, memorizing Scripture, implanting it in our hearts, fasting, praying, communing with God, so that when the attacks come, not if... But when the attacks come, we are armed, we are fortified, and, and first and foremost, knowing that it's, it's not just a, a skirmish we fight, it's not just one little battle, that the, the, the victory is ours, that Christ has won the victory on the cross. He won it here for us, that we can know and believe that, that though we may fall at a particular temptation, ultimately we are victorious, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And that, that is the glorious news that Christ puts forward. We see it in Matthew 4.10. He responds. He gives us the motivation. He gives us the source of power to overcome temptation. He gives us the reason. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. That should be the foundation of our lives. I will not serve these worthless idols. I will not go after the things of the world. I will not succumb to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the the pride of life. I will plead with the Lord to work in me a heart that longs to worship the Lord God and to serve him and him alone. This is what Christ did here. This is what he used to combat temptation. This was his foundation. This was his motivation and it takes us back to 1 John. It takes us back to 1 John. Don't love the world. Don't love Satan. Don't love the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Love the Lord God of the universe. Let's pray. Father, we uh, each struggle in different ways with these different temptations Some are deeply drawn to the lust of the flesh, the physical appetites. Some are deeply drawn to the lust of the eyes, that desire for vanity and appearance of greed and coveting. Some are are drawn into the pride of life, this this self-glorification, whether it's through wealth or title or position or school. Father, we all struggle with one or maybe all of these in different forms. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ today who faced these temptations in a very real and personal and and present way and, and did not succumb, did not give in, battled and fought not only here in Matthew 4, but also later in his life on the cross. He ultimately won the victory. He secured the victory for us that we will not be finally overcome by these things. We will not be destroyed by these things. We will not be taken by the world. Ultimately, we will see eternity, and we will see Christ, and we will bow before him because he was tempted and did not succumb. 
He fought the battle and won. Father, help us today in our daily battles to put on the armor of God, to fight against these things, but to do so in the power of Christ and with the sure knowledge that he has been tempted in any way, every way that we are. He has fought the battle. He has overcome on our behalf. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.